Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 12, 2013, and my guest is Michael Clemens, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, where he leads the Migration and Development Initiative. He has taught at Georgetown University, been a visiting scholar at New York University, and he has lived and worked in Colombia, Brazil, and Turkey. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan, and it's a great to be here. Thanks. Our topic for today is world poverty and how aid and migration might play a role in reducing that poverty. We're going to draw on two academic papers you've written on these topics and try to weave them together a bit. I want to start with aid. There are studies that find that aid increases growth and presumably reduces poverty. There are studies that find that aid doesn't increase growth. I assume there are studies that find that aid actually decreases growth. What are some of the problems in those studies in terms of measurement? What are the challenges with trying to measure the impact of aid on growth, which are quite numerous, I assume? Yes. So, uh, first of all, I, I appreciate this framing of the issue. I think that we'll be going from the less important to the more important topic. Uh, and I, I just want to make it clear why I say that. Uh, uh, right now, globally, foreign aid is a little over $120 billion a year, if I've got the latest number right. Uh, just the portion of migrants, uh, international migrants' earnings that they send home is about four times that. Uh, and that doesn't even account the gains to themselves and to the destination countries, et cetera. So really, we're starting with the sideshow, and then we're going to move on to the the, the big stuff. So but get, that sideshow, that sideshow is where a lot of people have focused over the last decade, few decades. The, yeah. The need for more aid, or the need to, that we should start cutting aid. But your point is that you're saying that migrants, temporary or not, I guess either way, that people who arrive. All Right, all all migrants send home five hundred, uh, right roughly five hundred billion dollars to their country of origin uh, as a transfer back to their to their families. Uh, it, it's it's between four and five hundred billion uh, a year. The World Bank has some estimates, and uh, those are imprecise. But by no any doubt. measure, it is they are several times uh, uh, foreign aid flows. And uh, as I said, that's just a part of the economic gain to migration. Correct. So, but get sticking at least for now with aid. So, yeah, what are the yeah. challenges with with trying to figure out whether aid's a good thing or not for the countries that receive it, the people in those countries? Yes. So, th- there are many layers of the onion here. So, if we have to start with uh, the what you say: is it a good thing or not? Uh, what we've studied in in a some depth is whether or not it causes economic growth. Uh, over a certain time horizon, uh, that is certainly only one part of. Uh, both uh, descriptively and normatively, what people mean by a good thing. Uh, descriptively, a, a big part of the purpose of lots of foreign aid is uh, geopolitical concerns, and one could argue that whether or not it's a good thing should be judged on those criteria. Uh, a, a lot of foreign aid, uh, uh, for example, the foreign aid that went to eradicating smallpox in the late 70s was not intended to promote economic growth, certainly not in the short uh, term. 
so, so within the question of whether or not it's a good thing, there is the question of whether or not it promotes economic growth, and that's uh, extremely difficult to assess, just like assessing whether or not anything causes economic growth. But that doesn't uh, stop people from assessing it, does it? No. <laughs> uh, long ago, <clears throat> back in uh, 1992, I think it was, one of my former professors and somebody I deeply admire, Greg Mankiw, wrote a paper in which he urged policymakers to pretty much ignore all growth regressions. And I am not sure that he was very far off in that assessment, but uh, it is it is probably better to uh, do it than not do it. And as you say, lots of people do it. Many people since the early 70s have regressed growth on aid in various forms. And uh, therewith come all kinds of problems. Uh, the, the biggest problem is uh, attributing causation. Uh, you, if you see a poor country getting aid, uh, it could be that the country is getting aid precisely because it was poor. It is poor uh, relative to other countries. It could even be that it's getting aid because it's poor relative to what it once was. That, that is, it, it had a, a negative economic shock, and then aid was ramped up. Uh, within that country over time. Uh, if you see uh, aid flowing and then uh, a country doing very well, say Korea got lots of uh, foreign aid after the Korean War and is now pretty much a rich country, uh, is it that aid was attracted by that success? Did aid cause that success? It's extremely difficult to sort out in uh, macroeconomic data. There's also the issue, uh, as you raise in your paper, uh, of timing. And why is that relevant? Yes. So uh, uh, there are. Th this is all very uh, commonsensical. If you uh, have a large aid project to, let's say, build a dam, uh, uh, build uh, roads into an agricultural area that didn't have market access before, uh, you might expect some increase in economic activity around those uh, those uh, projects. When would it arrive? Well, not uh, not the day that you disperse the aid. Uh, probably sometime before a century uh, later. But there isn't a lot of uh, guidance from economic theory about uh, exactly when that would happen. Uh, economic a lot of economic theory is built around comparative statics, and you might. Uh, uh, shift a curve and dow a country with more capital and expect uh, uh, at some rate within some time period a new equilibrium to arrive. But uh, really, uh, uh, we there is a there is a, there is not much guidance from economic theory about when those might arrive. On some for some types of aid, uh, I mentioned health aid to eradicate smallpox or. Uh, you know, the U.S. government gives aid to promote democracy. Uh, there are aid projects to promote women's rights. Uh, if those things ever uh, uh, affect economic growth, and, and they might, uh, it's not clear when that would happen. Uh, and so if you're looking for the, the growth effects of aid, there is some art and some uh, feeling around in, in the darkness that has to happen to find them. And, of course, in these... When you said, by the way, I just want to mention for listeners, comparative statics is just a fancy economics for what happens when one thing changes and everything else is held constant, which we try to measure with statistical techniques with, with a lot of difficulty, as, as we'll be talking about. Yes. But one of the other points is that these statistical analyses that 
that try to tease out the independent effect of aid on economic growth, uh, aid is just measured in dollars, correct? It's a very crude aggregate measure. Yes, it's a, it's a a the variable that we use and that most studies use is generated by the OECD, the Organization Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and it is a it is a uh, it is calculated through a pretty complex process uh, to include the grant component of loans and grants. So it is the concessional component of loans in dollars, as you said, and it is uh, 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 also grants in dollars lumped together. And then the other problem I want to just raise before we go on is the work of Morton Jervin, who was a guest on Econ Talk uh, fairly recently, who points out that in many poor countries, income or GDP or whatever measure you're going to be using as the going into the thing that's that aid is affecting is often mismeasured in systematic ways terribly mismeasured yes uh, you might have recently seen uh, that uh, the size of the economy of Ghana uh, as estimated by the World Bank uh, underwent a discontinuous change <laughs> that's happened uh, I think twice in recent history for China uh, this isn't because anything actually changed in the real world it's that uh, uh, People got arguably better at measuring what's actually going on. So yes, these are incredibly noisy uh, measures. And before we get to what you found in your study, I want to ask one more theoretical question, which is why would I ever think that there's a relationship between aid and growth? Um, aid and income, the level of, of income I can I could imagine depends on its possibility, um, if it's money well spent. But it's it would be difficult it would seem to me to consistently change the path of income which is what we're usually trying to do here correct so what what kind of projects you mentioned a couple road building i could i could imagine of the range of stuff that foreign aid goes to what are some of them that might plausibly lead to aid and what are some of them that we wouldn't expect at all I, as you say, aid goes to all kinds of things. Aid purchases uh, uh, weapons. Uh, aid purchases vaccines. Aid purchases uh, 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 nebulous training seminars uh, for low-level functionaries of ministries. Aid purchases uh, uh, building roads and airports. And as you said, some of those things, it's much more intuitively clear that it, uh, it's very hard for... Uh, agriculturists in internal Cameroon to get their products out, and if you build a road that is accessible most of the year by uh, normal vehicles so that they can sell stuff in urban areas, uh, you'd kind of be surprised if that didn't affect economic activity in a broader sense. On the other hand, uh, a training seminar for low-level functionaries of the finance ministry in Monrovia uh, uh, it, it it depends a lot on who's there and what information is being conveyed and what the other bottlenecks in the system are. Uh, and then there are some, as I said, there are large swaths of aid that really, uh, I'm, I'm not sure it makes much sense to evaluate them for their uh, impact on economic growth. You know, the, the eradication of smallpox is arguably on the top 10 list of human achievements 
and I'm not sure if that's uh, because, because it affected economic growth. For sure. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm not a big fan of, econ- of, of, of foreign aid um, of, of most kinds. Yet it would seem to me that given this measurement issue that much of, of these transfers, much of this aid, wouldn't it be expecting – we wouldn't expect it to affect economic activity or growth. Does that mean that many of the studies are biased downward in what they measure, that they're going to underestimate the impact of growth because they're including in in aid things that you wouldn't expect to be, and therefore that would bias the coefficient, the measured impact, to be smaller than it actually is? Or do some of the studies that are um, that are important in the literature, do they correct for that? So some do and some don't. Uh, I uh, in in our work we eliminate humanitarian aid, which really you know distributing bottles of water after the earthquake in Haiti was not intended to promote medium and long term economic growth. It was a humanitarian measure. Uh, aggregate aid includes that. We uh, in in some of our specifications we exclude it. Uh, a, a a project to promote primary education. Uh, again, in in part, that's inherently valuable. In 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 part, that might affect economic growth, but probably not within the next few years. Uh, maybe decades from now, if ever. Uh, so it might reduce uh, yes. it. Might reduce it. Keep the kids who might have been working or otherwise now going to be investing, and measured income could go down. It, it could go down in, in the, the short, short term run. and yeah. the long term. Well, and that, the long term. That too, because- Sometimes they don't learn anything. There's a lot of issues, yeah. Lane Pritchard has some fascinating work documenting how little learning is going on in, in schools. Uh, he argues against uh, uh, measuring education by what he calls uh, rear ends in seats yeah. uh, uh, and, and instead by learning. And uh, if you look at the learning metrics that we have from PISA test scores and other things, there's, there's uh, so little learning going on in a lot of extremely low-quality school systems that it's, it's not immediately obvious that uh, an additional year of schooling in some countries would promote economic growth ever. But putting all that to the side... Uh, yeah. there, there are studies that, that try to do this. They try to measure this impact. They do the best they yeah. can. And, of course, um, there's a big problem with confirmation bias, as you allude to in your paper. Your yeah. paper, by the way, is called um, Counting Chickens When They Hatch, Timing and the Effects of Aid on Growth. And your co-authors are Stephen Radelet, Rakil Bhavnani, and Samuel Bazzi. And that was published in the Economic Journal and won the Royal Economic Society Prize for the best paper in the Economic Journal in the, last, in the previous two years. So – uh, well done, and I really like what you try to do I think in this I think paper. That not much else was submitted during that. <laughs> well, I think they probably filled out the journal as best they could. Um, but I really admire what you tried to do in the paper, which is an issue that comes up often in this uh, in econ talk, which is there's a bunch of advocates on one side of a policy issue. There's a bunch of advocates on the other. They both claim that they have empirical support for their position. And they just yell at each other uh, as if they're scientists and the other guys are are hacks. But um, you actually try to figure out why they get different results, which I applaud. So give Thank us you. an idea. It's, it's a technical paper. It, it's um, we'll, we'll put a link up to it. It's it's available online. Uh, tell us what you tried to do uh, to try to adjudicate. You're, you're kind of a referee between these two competing arguments that aids. Worthless and AIDS phenomenal. 
So th- this was a this paper evolved a lot. Uh, it's a, a, a economists like justifiably like to complain about the peer review process and how there's no accountability and it takes forever. But this this is a case where peer review really made this paper a lot better. We started by uh, doing statistical analysis of the relationship between aid and growth in our own way. And one of the things that the referees complained about was, look, is this mutually uh, commensurable with other estimates? Because there's all kinds of regressions out there. Uh, each of them is doing it a different way with People different data different sets ass- and different time periods. Different assumptions. And- embodying all kinds of different assumptions. And uh, we read those and saw that they were right. And so one of the things that we changed over years that this paper was floating around was to throw away our original analysis and start with the uh, three most cited papers in the literature, uh, just as a, as a proxy for what's been influential to economists' thinking. Start with their data sets, start with all of the assumptions that they had made, and see if we could understand why they were getting uh, massively different results. So on the one hand, you had... Uh, an American Economic Review paper by Burnside and Dollar uh, finding a positive effect of aid on growth. Uh, on the other hand, you had a paper by Rajan and Subramanian uh, finding the opposite, and uh, again, with different assumptions, different time periods, different measures of aid, etc. Uh, so the, 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 the strategy was to try to uh, peel away uh, one by one the differences between them so that we could find the, the, the common link. And the, there was a third paper, right? Is it Boone? Yes. So the, the, maybe the, the, a highly seminal paper in this literature uh, by Peter Boone um, was about the relationship between aid and investment, so closely related to economic growth, but uh, not exactly growth. Okay. And – uh, what did you what did you find? You actually found something that could lead to knowledge, at least possibly. What was it? <laughs> I'm very you so, know, I'm very hesitant to make a claim. <laughs> so go ahead. So I I have to say again, I'm quite sympathetic with Mankiw's view of this whole literature. It's uh, very difficult, inherently difficult, and uh, to to tease out uh, true causal relationships in cross country data. And so this is an area that is uh, that is. Uh, that is impossible from which it's impossible to remove uncertainty. But what we we found was that uh, in a few of the cases, the results were highly sensitive to the data set. Uh, so, for example, uh, in Boone's analysis, he uh, truncated the data set. So that is, he removed uh, a bunch of observations, and he he had removed all uh, of the data points in which a country had received more than 15% of GDP in aid. Um, he, he argues in a footnote that those are not informative because aid is fungible uh, when it gets to be a large fraction of GDP. Uh, we didn't think that was a a, a uh, we didn't think that was a reasonable thing to do. What did, he, <laughs> so what, did we, he, what did he mean by fungible? There, meaning it could be done. It could be used for other things, right? That, what, what was the? What, do you understand the intuition behind his even behind his claim? Yes. So what he was interested in was whether aid uh, increases investment. And you can imagine that uh, you you could imagine a world in which uh, low levels of aid uh, that are intended to promote investment do in fact promote, uh, are are in fact spent on the thing that they were intended to be spent on, 
Whereas when aid, when a country is awash in aid and it's 50% of GDP and there's no accountability for what happens to it, it tends to leak into other areas or uh, displace uh, local government expenditures on things that would have happened anyway uh, and be less well targeted towards the projects that would have increased investment, like yeah. uh, like building a port or a road. I'd go uh, the other way, though. I'd say the larger it is, the harder it is for the fungibility to offset the intention of the aid, right? The I, larger the aid, if, if investment is if, – if the aid is relatively small, it's really easy for me to substitute what I'm already spending on investment and just use the aid. The aid's really – I guess it goes – it doesn't matter. It, I, never mind. But the point is, is that it doesn't seem like a very good – it's not a compelling reason for cutting off those other people, those other data, that truncating the data. I like your theory. It's perfectly plausible to me. And and as you say, once you get into this game of uh, I can come up with a plausible footnote which <laughs> which justifies cutting whatever ten percent of the data set I want, uh, that's a that's a that's a route towards uh, uh, putting the con back in econometrics, uh, as Ed Lemer once wrote. So uh, what what we did was just reconstruct the database and put those back in, and it, and that uh, that made the results much more harmonious with uh, uh, other papers. Uh, in the case of the paper of Rajan and Subramanian, they had uh, begun their analysis in 1980 and had uh, uh, not included observations from the 1970s, e- even though uh, we-, we couldn't find a compelling reason to do that because observations for the 1970s for all of the relevant variables were uh, available. So we uh, added those back in. Um, and... When uh, when you do this uh, and, and and make other changes that I could uh, go on and on about if you'd like me to, you 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 Don't. find much uh, much <laughs> less conflict between the the results of the various papers. But the uh, most what, important thing you did is you you tried to harmonize the timing of when the aid might have an impact to try to hold that constant in the analysis, right? Yes. So what a lot of countries, what a lot of these uh, studies had done was uh, uh, chop up time into periods, usually four or five year periods, and ask uh, what is the relationship between aid flows during that period and uh, growth during that period. And there's something a little unsatisfying about that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, say aid that arrives, uh, uh, say let's say the period is 1970 to 1974. Well, obviously aid that arrives in 1973 you can't affect growth in 1971. <laughs> So you're you're introducing some noise uh, into the uh, into the calculation just by the way that you're comparing the data. Maybe it makes more sense to comp- to ask the question: Does aid that arrived uh, between 1970 and 1974 uh, affect growth between 1975 and 1979? And we did the latter. And uh, it, that that also uh, we argue is an important reason why you find different results between different studies, and and that's exactly what you'd expect if you're if you're testing contemporaneous relationships versus short-term relationships versus long-term relationships. Those could all be different, and as I as I mentioned, economic theory doesn't guide us very much about uh, the relative strengths of a relationship we would find in those three kinds of analysis. So when you Try to make the same assumptions with the same data. Uh, yes. What did you find? So we find that in in five year periods, let's say, divide the time into five year periods, that aid arriving in 
one period is positively related to is pos- positively correlated with uh, growth in the subsequent period uh, after uh, removing the effects of uh, characteristics of countries that don't change over time. Uh, that is uh, differencing the data in, in, in the technical term, and uh, that is trying to hold constant things like the culture of the country that. Um, Latitude, the institutions, that, right? The the seas, the the climate, etc. Exactly, but but not holding constant things like wars and and uh, political regimes and things that do change over time within a particular country. Uh, so you found a positive I, effective aid on on growth, but small. A, a, a positive correlation uh, that uh, we think is most plausibly interpreted as an effect in this uh, context, but uh, really quite modest. We're talking about a. Uh, a, a, a 10 percentage point increase in aid as a fraction of GDP in one period being associated with about a 1 percentage point uh, increase in uh, growth per year in the subsequent period. So note, note well what that means and what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that each dollar of aid is giving you back uh, a dollar or more of growth. That, that depends on what happens on, on the full time path of the effect. Does it, does it last two, three, four, or five-year periods into the future? Does it peter out after the first period? We didn't right. do that analysis. A one percentage point increase in growth rates is, that persisted would be phenomenally important. But one that didn't would actually uh, be giving you less uh, economic value than the than the the uh, dollar value of the aid that was dispersed. Correct. So th- this this is not a cost benefit analysis. We we were just trying to answer a very very simple question, which is in this in this uh, difficult uh, empirical environment with very dirty data, is it possible to detect any effect whatsoever? Because the literature had been a thirty year literature had been very equivocal about that question. And what. When you published that paper, you were, um, I guess, poking your finger a little bit in the eye of those who said it doesn't have any effect. But you probably were also attacking implicitly some folks who thought it was much larger than what you found. So, what kind of reaction did you get from the from the profession and, and the and people in the growth area? I, uh, as you say, there's a lot of confirmation bias uh, uh, in economics, in all science, in fact, and I don't uh, exclude myself from it. Unfortunately, science is done by human beings. So I, uh, people who had priors in one direction <laughs> liked the paper. People who had priors in another direction didn't. Um, I, uh, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, I think it is. I think the the thing that should shock us and surprise us as economists would be to find that all of the aid funded dams, uh, roads, uh, 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 malaria eradication campaigns, uh, children's vaccination campaigns, etc., that have gone on since the Truman administration had uh, uh, absolutely no effect whatsoever on any economic decisions of anyone in the entire developing world. Uh, at the same time, there is just no evidence uh, that I've ever seen, and certainly not in the data that we look at, that foreign aid per se can be anything resembling a growth strategy per se for any developing country. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, very uh, modest effects, effects that we find uh, 
diminish as the level of aid relative to GDP uh, rises. And fundamentally, the thing that is uh, going to affect people's uh, economic opportunity throughout the developing world is uh, going to be other forces. The, the reason that the first millennium development goal uh, for having world poverty uh, was met years ago uh, was primarily because of growth in China and India. And uh, any observer of those two countries is... Uh, 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 is uh, no observer of those two countries could claim that foreign aid played a major role in uh, in in those two experiences. So so let's turn to migration and the paper we're going to be yours we're going to be talking about is the title is economics and emigration trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. Yeah. So uh, start by talking about why you reference sidewalks. Some of my listeners uh, our listeners will know. That reference, we probably mentioned it before, but tell tell why you gave it that title. Yes, so it, it, uh, it comes from uh, a, a, a a a bad joke. Uh, I, 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 you've discussed it in previous episodes, maybe with Mike Munger. Uh, I, I don't I remember. And, and I think that's true. You you questioned whether joke was the right <laughs> term Correct. for this. It's, uh, yeah, it's I, not... <laughs> I, I think anecdote was the word. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Was the term you preferred, and uh, since it's not very funny, but it, it is uh, uh, an, an economist and, and somebody from another discipline, uh, often uh, a, a sociologist or an anthropologist, walking uh, along the street, uh, one of them spies a, a $20 bill, and the, the, the economist argues that it couldn't be there because uh, it couldn't be there lying on the sidewalk because somebody would have picked it up. Uh, and it's... Uh, this is uh, uh, often a, a joke that is used to uh, poke economists for their assumptions. But the, the underlying assumption behind it that is roughly true is that money that's lying around gets picked up quickly. Uh, the larger it is, the quicker it gets picked up. Doesn't yeah. mean there's never a $20 bill because you could be the first one to come across it, but – if a lot of people are walking along that street, the odds are good it's not really there. It's an illusion. Uh, so when your buddy asks you uh, to go in on a great stock buy because he's got a, he just knows this this uh, company's poised for greatness, he's probably not the first to think of that, and the stock price probably already reflects the information. And that is one of the more useful things you might hear from me on talk. So let's, um, <laughs> but remember, uh, future results um, are not. Past results are not necessarily a guarantee of future results. Yeah. Um, so what you're arguing in this paper is that barriers to the movement of people, yes. the importance of that dwarfs the importance of barriers to the movement of goods, tariffs and quotas, and that not only does it dwarf it, it's enormous. Um, it's much bigger and it's really big. So what's the argument and uh, how, how do you begin to try to measure this um, – Obviously, it has to be very crude, but what kind of – talk about the underlying economics of emigration. Yes. So now we're getting to the, the really first-order effects on, on the world economy. So I, there is a, an astonishing fact about the economy. I can see it from my Washington, D.C. Uh, office window right now. I'm looking out at uh, Massachusetts Ave, which is full of taxis. A lot of those drivers are Ethiopian and Eritrean uh, men, and they earn 
uh, hundreds of percent uh, more in real terms for doing the exact same job driving a cab here than they would if they were in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, indistinguishable. Take the same car, driving around, doing the same thing. Um, and that is a, uh, from different points of view, it's an arbitrage opportunity. It's the same uh, good, the labor of a, uh, a person selling for vastly disparate prices in two markets. Uh, it is a, uh, it is a, a wedge uh, in uh, the uh, graphs of e economic supply and demand that everybody sees in, in Econ 101, a wedge between supply and demand meeting. Uh, and it is an opportunity to expand the economic welfare of the world. And what I, what I did in that paper was just uh, look through uh, the handful of estimates of how big that welfare gain opportunity is uh, if we could somehow uh, harness that potential welfare gain by eliminating that wedge to some degree, uh, moving across that arbitrage opportunity to generate economic value for the world, how, how big would that uh, change in welfare be? And the long and short of it is that it comes out to uh, uh, something in the uh, tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars. These, all of these are uh, amount to fancy back of the envelope calculations. Uh, obviously, nothing like uh, free uh, labor mobility has happened in recent history around the world, and so they're all modeling exercises. They all embody lots of different assumptions. But I, I looked through what's uh, out there. I saw that those numbers are very large, and then I discussed some uh, a research agenda around that issue. Uh, uh, understanding better the uh, size of the opportunity, uh, the, the kinds of institutions that would be needed to realize that opportunity, uh, addressing some uh, research that challenges the size of those estimates and so on. So if a cab driver in, in Ethiopia is currently making $4 a day and they come to Washington, D.C. and they make $100 a day, they're obviously dramatically better off, but if every cab driver in Ethiopia came to the United States, a couple of a bunch of things would start to happen. So one of the challenges of these kind of back of the envelope calculations is you, you usually assume that the impact isn't linear. You can't just keep getting that twenty-five fold increase in in well-being, but it probably doesn't go to zero either. So how do you deal yeah. with that? What are some of the assumptions you have to make in trying to assess those? potential gains if because we assume we assume that I assume you assume that not every Ethiopian is going to move to the United States, but a lot of them might. Uh, and so you have to make a guess about that too, right? Yes. Yes. So the, you're you're talking about the difference between the gain to the marginal migrant and the gain to the average migrant in scenarios of large uh large uh, migration. What would be the gain to uh, the next person who comes versus the typical person who comes under a mass movement scenario. And those could be very different. Uh, in a paper with Lance Pritchard and Claudio Montenegro uh, called The Place Premium, we tried to estimate uh, the marginal effect. Uh, what is the gain to the next migrant 
who comes to the United States from each of 42 different countries. And it is gigantic. Uh, it is typically uh, 300% of that person's uh, real income in the country they start from. In some countries, it's over 1,000% in real terms. And But as you say, that's the, that's the gain to the next person. If there were to be a mass movement, uh, uh, how far down the uh, labor demand curve might the, the destination country move as there's a greater and greater supply of labor? That's, that can only be an area of speculation. I think it's an area of, uh, that is of critical importance to economic research, and that's one of the reasons I wrote that trillion-dollar bills paper was to nudge economists towards studying these issues more. But as I talk about in, the, in that paper, there are a lot of reasons to question uh, the, the automatic assumption that comes to people's mind that somehow we would be driven all the way down the labor demand curve into a... a, a a Dante-like uh, scenario of, of, uh, of death and destruction. Um, one of those is uh, U.S. history. So in uh, in 1905, this was a country with just over 75 million people in it. A um, hundred years later, in 2005, it was over 300 million people. And look how poor we and, are. And uh, absolutely. So for, first of all, we had a an astonishing uh, increase in the real living standards of uh, essentially everybody in the country. We had uh, exactly zero change in unemployment between those two years. Unemployment in 1905 and 2005 were both about 5%. Um, so there, there's, something, uh, there's something wrong with a, a, a simple model of the long-term change in countries in which uh, more and more labor just drives you down a labor uh, demand curve. All kinds of other things are going on. But even in much shorter term scenarios, uh, that that mental model just uh, uh, shatters against reality. And one that I often mention is the end of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, there were uh, parts of the Republic of South Africa uh, that that what people call the Republic of South Africa now that were not considered by the RSA part of the RSA before the end of apartheid. So uh, both Botswana, for example, uh, Siskai, Venda, were considered at different points in history separate nations. They had their own. Uh, they had their own institutions. They uh, they had uh, 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 judicial systems, stamps. Uh, other other countries, as far as I know, uh, nobody except the, the Republic of South Africa recognized those countries, but uh, certainly the RSA did, and then suddenly. Uh, that distinction was eliminated uh, through a, a series of uh, ethical legal changes in the early 90s. So suddenly you had this population that uh, was about uh, seven times as large as the white population, depending on how you define non-white. Uh, it was about a sixth the average uh, income of the white population. Um, and suddenly all of uh, decades-long uh, barriers to labor mobility were eliminated. Uh, there had been a complex system of, of past laws, uh, who could work in the white areas, uh, in what occupations, even during what hours of the day. Uh, 
in, in fact, they went way, way beyond eliminating those uh, barriers. Uh, you know, people got entitlements, people got the vote for president. I mean, way, way more than just labor mobility. And if that were to drive uh, whites in white areas down a labor demand curve, we would have seen now, uh, after uh, uh, 19 years since the process of opening uh, finished, we would see now uh, that whites had been terribly impoverished by this huge increase in labor supply, and not, not just a huge increase in labor supply, but a huge increase in low skill, primarily labor supply, in white areas. And the bottom line is absolutely nothing like that happens. There, there are a lot of studies of uh, what's happened to workers in South Africa since these uh, barriers went away. Their usual concern is to try to figure out uh, how much convergence between white and black living standards there has been. But a notable fact in all those studies is that there is uh, no decline at all in typical uh, uh, white living standards uh, across the board. It's not that poor whites have, have uh, gotten worse off or rich have, uh, and it's compensated by some sort of gains to the rich. It's that uh, across the entire distribution of white income, you don't see any downward convergence towards the level of, of black incomes. Apparently, there are multiple labor markets in South Africa. These are uh, they are segmented for reasons other than geography and just uh, a, a, a complete geographic opening uh, did not uh, mean that whites and blacks were competing uh, against each other in exactly the same labor markets. So, I. Uh, this, these kind of examples, I don't mean to suggest that we, we know anything about what would happen under greater labor mobility in the world uh, definitively from the South African example. I raise it just to try to, to urge people to question a, a, any simple model that might be in their mind of, hey, there's one labor market in the U.S. and the more people from Vietnam and Peru who come here are just going to drive us uh, uh, ever downward into a, a low-wage, high-unemployment uh, hell. And I think that's a – that is a – I won't say I won't say it's a common view. I'd say it's a common argument. I don't know how widely the view is actually held, but it's off – that argument's often invoked as yeah. an argument against um, uh, Im- increases in immigration. And I, I understand the argument in, in the following way. Well, let's think about it, uh, and I, I sometimes get criticized – for being a free marketer in immigration because, well, after all, it's not as much of an impact on me. And that could be because I have tenure, which I don't right now, so it doesn't matter, that argument. But, <laughs> but they'll say you'll have more competition. And a lot of people say then, okay, you free marketers, you, you need to advocate for the free movement of not just low-skilled labor, which doesn't compete with you, but high-skilled labor. And I certainly support increases in the mobility of both low- and high-skilled labor. But having said that, I assume that if there were a huge influx of economists from foreign countries who could compete with what I do, uh, that that could affect my wage. My answer to that is I don't think I have the right to keep them out. Uh, so I, 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 there's a moral issue here, which which I want to put to the side. But I just want to I want to mention it, and then we'll put it to the side. But on the economics issue, you know, the key claim is that. By letting in uh, lots of low-skilled workers, for example, there are people who say, well, I'm in favor of more immigration as long as it's the right kind, and I'm in favor of all kinds. But for those who are – who make the distinction, they'll say, well, I'm in favor of low-skilled 
um, I'm, I'm in favor of high-skilled immigration. It's okay for um, Andy Grove to come here, who founded Intel, or the parents of Sergey Brin, who founded uh, Google. Uh, they came here, and Sergey then was able to go through the American education system for a little bit and then create help create Google with Larry Page. They're okay. They help everybody. But these low-skill workers, we can't have them because all they do is they compete with other low-skill workers. Those workers are already having a tough time. And uh, therefore, it's wrong to let these uh, immigrants come in. And I, I understand that argument on – I don't understand it on moral grounds, but on economic grounds, I, I, I understand the potential for it to be true. What evidence do we have for it? You gave the South African example. It's a fascinating example. What evidence do we have for it uh, that, it's, that, it's not, that it's true or not true? There are, again, people on both sides of this issue empirically, and how would you begin to think about why which one's right? So uh, let me start by saying that uh, uh, in my uh, PhD cohort of, uh, I believe it was 30, there were three Americans. And when you look at the other 27, uh, when you find people like uh, Justin Wolfers, who I understand is a friend of uh, EconTalk, uh, and uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Stefano Della Vigna and uh, Mario Sangaletos and other uh, geniuses, uh, you might uh, you might think that there uh, sh- should have been uh, uh, two Americans rather than three, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, 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 I yes, I, I, I don't only talk about uh, low skill migration. I talk about high skill migration as well, and uh, I think it's uh, quite obviously beneficial to the economics profession and others that uh, my class and the entire profession is drawing from the, the whole planet. Um. Let's talk about uh, low-skill migration. So, uh, it is uh, it is fascinating to see uh, the descendants of almost exclusively uh, low-skill migrants in the United States debate whether or not low-skill migration is a good thing. Um, in 1940. Uh, the the U.S. Census records what fraction of uh, the white foreign-born w- had a high school degree, and it was 12 percent. 12 percent, 88 percent of uh, adult uh, 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 white foreign-born in, in 1940 uh, were what would today be called high school dropouts. So really, when, if we're talking about the immigrant ancestors of myself and uh, uh, nearly any American uh, uh, I shouldn't say nearly any. The the vast majority of, of Americans uh, listening to this show, whose immigrant whose parents came uh, uh, several decades ago or more, we're, we're talking about low skill migrants. So they they built this country. They uh, 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 they created the entire economy of this country. Their descendants are the labor force of the, the economy. And yet, as you say, there is an active public debate about. Uh, whether anybody who uh, doesn't have specialized knowledge in in some uh, uh, field is really adding anything to the economy. And it it, it always puzzles me. Uh, You know, uh, Adam Smith uh, could have written a book about how uh, French and Portuguese uh, exports, when they come into Britain, just drive down prices and isn't that bad for the economy. Uh, he wrote something a lot more sophisticated than that. Uh, uh, Ricardo expanded on his arguments. Uh, e- economists have been uh, broadening people's uh, view of 
the economic consequences of interactions like these for centuries. And yet, the, a lot of the discussion about immigration right now uh, among top economists and really uh, uh, supremely brilliant people focuses on this issue. Uh, the, one of the most influential papers in the literature is the, a quarterly journal of economics a paper by George Borjas, whose title is literally, The Labor Demand Curve is Downward Sloping. Uh, with is in italics, uh, that is, uh, you know, when there's more labor, prices go down. Um, that uh, that uh, uh, is a stunningly incomplete analysis of the impact of low-skilled labor on the country as a whole. Um, I I don't think that uh, uh, Borjas himself intends it for be, to be a a uh, a complete analysis of the economic impact of labor. In fact, in a speech he gave at the World Bank in February of this year, uh, he uh, de definitively stated that the results of this literature on whether or not low-skill labor drives down wages for other low-skill workers has no, uh, per se, policy implication at all. Uh, nothing whatsoever, I think, were his exact uh, words, because he's well aware there are many, many other considerations um, so, I'm what, just gonna, what are some of those? Kinds yeah, of let me stop. Let me just stop you there for a minute. So, yes, yes. if we we've allowed in the last, oh, uh, I guess uh, twenty five years, roughly, an increase in in immigration from relatively low wage countries, and the people who come here come here are predominantly low skill. And my argument has always been that that's great for them, just like low. Prices of imports are good for most Americans. That's good for people who hire low, lower skilled labor, whether yeah. that's a customer who wants to ride in a taxi or somebody wants their house uh, repaired or cleaned or their lawn cut and things that re require relatively low skills. Uh, that that's been good for for most people. But it's also true, it would seem to me, and this is I, I'm with you and I'm with George partially, Borjas. This is not the crux of the matter, but it is one aspect of the matter that, that I could imagine that people who do compete in that niche of low-skill workers that were already here are, could be harmed. Maybe in the long run. Certainly it's plausible they'd be harmed in the short run. Um, and you know, my thought about that is that if – and I, Borjas's findings uh, that, that, sh that show that the demand curve slopes downward, which is just, again, a fancy way of saying that when there's an increase in labor, the wage goes down – holding everything else constant, I, I'm perfectly okay with that His, in the sense that his findings are quite small. The yeah. impact on, on, the, on the wages of low-scale workers who are harmed, the impact is quite small. It's mostly high school dropouts, and it seems to me that instead of keeping out immigrants, we ought to try to keep people in high school, that that would be the appropriate policy response to that empirical finding, and yet that is not always the case. So react to that point. It just uh, as a footnote, you could even argue that uh, it is uh, antithetical to the goal of keeping people in high school to uh, uh, prop up the wages of, uh, of people who do not finish high school. But uh, let's uh, let's get to the real question of what are the impacts. Uh, uh, it's it's obvious that labor demand curves are downward sloping. Uh, as you say, that is a uh, that tells you something about the uh, the microscopic. Uh, Proximate impact on a worker of another worker competing for a job this afternoon. If uh, you and three other people are answering an advertisement and one of you gets it, well, 
that might affect your the 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 the. Uh, uh, wage that you would insist on for getting a, a job next week and might tend to drive down wages. But there's so much else that goes on in an economy. And th- this is where I get frustrated with the, the, uh, with a, a, a literature on immigration that is focused exclusively on labor economics. So, uh, what are, uh, some of the things wrong with that? So, so what one, uh, is that, uh, uh, that, Native workers and immigrant workers are even uh, uh, people who look similar in statistical data. Let's say people who have less than high school education are uh, not in competition with each other uh, to anywhere near the degree that uh, a lot of people assume they they might be. And a a completely separate thing uh, is that the demand for the labor of low-skill natives is bolstered by all kinds of economic forces to which uh, immigrants contribute. That is, uh, the, the jobs that a lot of low-skill immigrants have now uh, exist because uh, there has been low-skill immigration to this country. So, so let's talk about each of those separately because they, they are completely separate issues. Um, I, uh, I've been writing recently about the... A, a, a point that Lance Pritchett uh, of Harvard and also Center for Global Development brought up, which is the massive disparity between the supply of low-skill Americans and the Bureau of Labor Statistics projections for the demand for low-skill workers in this country. So if you take the uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projections for increase in uh, employers' demand for certain occupations over uh, the coming decade. They, they do it for 2010 to 2020, but it's more or less the decade to come. And you look just at the occupations which do not require a high school degree. So we're talking about uh, basic uh, personal care, uh, care for the elderly, basic child care. We're talking about warehousers, uh, back, uh, back of the restaurant, uh, food service workers, uh, basic construction workers, landscapers. Um, these are some of the highest growth occupations in the country. Uh, if you add up just those and uh, the others in the top 20, which do not require a high school degree, and ask over oh, the next decade how many more uh, jobs will there, will there be, how many more people will employers be demanding in those areas, it comes out to about 3 million more people. And if you look at the Census Bureau's projections for how many uh, working-age Americans there are going to be entering the labor force in the same time period, it is 1.7 million people. Uh, so th- think about that for a second. Uh, the 3 million is the demand for additional low-skill workers, and the entire growth in the whole U.S. labor force is going to be about half that amount. But, so if that, I'm, I mean, but, but if I'm a low-skill worker, that's great. And if we keep out those low-skilled immigrants, that means I'm going to get a much higher wage, and we're going to have a lower poverty rate in the United States. Again, I don't find this argument compelling, but that's the argument that would seem to follow if you believe those BLS projections. Sure, what about the employers of the other half? I mean, let's say hypothetically every single American entering the labor force, every last person uh, took a low-skill job. No reason to go to college, no reason to even finish high school. For any of them, all of the new American labor force entrants over the next 10 years did uh, these jobs. That would leave half of them unfilled. 
So those are people with nobody to take care of their grandparents, nobody to uh, cook uh, food in the, the, the restaurant. Uh, that's, uh, that's impoverishment of the whole country. Well, that, I, that, that would kill economic activity. Well, I'm not so sure. I, I, I take the point that, that there would be an impact on the, on the non-scale population because the prices would be higher. But we assume there'd be substitution in various – because I, I, I don't find that argument to be a very compelling argument for immigration – just like this argument you hear that if you know if we didn't allow immigrants in, we wouldn't get our food picked. We'd get it picked. It'd just be picked by people who were now paid a lot more. Uh, there might be less of it picked. It might be picked by machines now. We'd figure things – the economy, I think, would adjust just as it would if there were a plague, you know, God forbid, or, or other things that restricted labor supply that we didn't have policy control over. Um, sure. So to me – To a degree. So to me, that's not – I don't like – Personally, don't like that argument. I don't find it. I don't find it convincing. Um, give me something else. That, that, to a degree, that's true. Uh, it is also true that if the price of uh, U.S. picked cucumbers went up by a certain amount, there wouldn't be any more U.S. grown cucumbers, and that would be a, 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 to the detriment of U.S. GDP. Yeah. Uh, it, it's also true that uh, 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 if childcare gets to a, a certain point, there are parents who are not going to enter the labor force. Uh, this is something that Patricia Cortez at Boston University has shown in a couple of excellent papers. It's also true that. Uh, uh, I recently had the experience of being an employer of elder care workers, and uh, th- there was a certain amount of retirement savings. And uh, uh, if uh, our, the wages we were paying were doubled, that means that we would have gotten a lot less care, and we would have had to go through all kinds of machinations to make that happen. So, yes, there, some substitution low, can happen yeah, to some and, degree. And however, low, And low prices are really good. I'm all for it. For, for the economy yeah, yeah, as a whole. Yeah. So th- we agree on that. So, but let's, you, yeah. I think you had another point you wanted to make. Um, yes. No, all I want to argue, I don't want to argue that this is uh, some sort of mechanistic relationship. I, I am just arguing that there, there is, uh, there is, uh, there is a lot less competition between these people and, and U.S. low skill workers, I think, than people tend to assume. I, I don't think most people realize uh, the, the uh, gigantic demand for low-skill work that's happening in this country and how much greater it is than the number of uh, Americans willing to do low-skill work right now. Fair enough. But, but, but more important is, uh, is this uh, second uh, concern, which is that uh, when there, that, that low-skill workers have indirect economic effects on all kinds of other uh, things. So when low-skill workers from abroad and low-skill workers here work together, they often specialize in different tasks and make each other more productive. Uh, You see that on uh, farms uh, in which uh, you have two people with uh, uh, who might, in a a George Borjas regression, uh, uh, look similar, uh, having a high school or less education and be 25 years old, but they tend to specialize in different things. Uh, often because of language skills and for for other reasons, uh, you find that there is uh, uh, also complementarity between the skill groups. I mentioned the the work of Patricia Cortes suggesting that when uh, uh, child care by low skill workers is uh, cheaper, more high skill women, people with uh, doctoral degrees and law degrees, tend to participate in the labor force, uh, work outside the home, and uh, that that grows the economy. Um, Patricia Cortes has another uh, paper in the Journal of Political Economy uh, pointing out that uh, uh, low-skill 
immigrants have driven down the prices of some essential services, which raises the real wage of all other workers. Uh, you uh, mentioned the relationship between uh, high school, between the education choices, the, the choice to stay in school, go to college or not, and the uh, the, the price of low-skill labor, the price of high-skill labor. Jenny Hunt, who's currently the, uh, she's at Rutgers usually, but right now she's the Department of Labor chief economist, has a recent and fascinating paper in which she argues that the the availability of uh, low-skill labor and the, the, the consequent effects on the wage structure of high-skill versus low-skill uh, uh, labor have encouraged people, unsurprisingly, to stay in school more. I, I believe she looks across U.S. states, uh, which uh, which states have gotten more and uh, which states have gotten fewer low-skill workers in recent years and finds that in places where low-skill labor is more available, uh, uh, U.S. workers uh, not wanting to compete in that market have tended to get more educated. And that makes the, the entire economy more productive as well. And we, we also mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that the existence of some uh, uh, subsectors of the economy that depends on the availability of low-skill labor. That Yes, there are parts of U.S. agriculture that can be mechanized in the short term. There are many parts that uh, there is no uh, uh, profitable way to mechanize right now. Uh, Lettuce-picking melons, cucumbers, uh, apples. Um, th there are machines that help uh, fully mechanizing it and getting uh, products that are uh, of the quality that can compete with imports is not now possible. And in, in, at least in the in the shorter medium term, those industries would would uh, would not exist. There are lots of other sectors that that uh, really can't be uh, uh, mechanized. Uh, think of uh, most aspects of elder care are not going to be mechanized anytime soon. They can't be traded. Uh, they are person-to-person uh, -person, uh, interactions. Lant Pritchett calls them hardcore non-tradables, things that uh, it's hard to envision how they're going to be uh, substitutable by technological change or international trade anytime soon. We, we really have a long list of, of ways in which low-skill labor through various channels, by, by creating sectors of the economy, by changing people's educational choices, by uh, encouraging female labor force participation, by by making high skilled workers more productive, by making other uh, through specialization low skill workers uh, more productive, all of these things are, uh, in, in economic terms, they are shifting out the demand curve for those people's labor, uh, even as they're being driven down that curve. And this this is offsetting why, offsetting the the potential uh, effects of the the sub labor supply change. Exactly. Exactly, and and th this is why in the, the the state of the art in the the analysis of the overall effects of low skill immigration, which is right now a paper in the journal of the European Economic Association last year, um, by Ottaviano and Peri, finds that uh, even for low skill workers, even for less than high school educated workers, the uh, cumulative I believe it's fifteen years. Uh, or 15 or 20, I, I don't remember exactly, uh, of, uh, of immigration in the latest data uh, has a, a positive effect on the wages of workers. And, it, and this is through, through this uh, offsetting shifting of the demand curve, even as obviously uh, U.S. workers are, are, are moving down that curve. Yeah, I have to say, um, again, as, as 
emphatically supportive as I am of, of allowing more people to come move freely across borders, the empirical literature trying to tease out these effects make such incredibly heroic assumptions about the nature of the production process. Um, yes. I, I, the only thing I would say about this literature, just I think it's important to emphasize it, is that even the people who are hostile to immigration, to increased immigration, who presumably have a, a tendency to make the assumptions, again, there are many to make, uh, trying to measure and tease out the independent effect of more immigration, do find a relatively small effect. A relatively small is, I think, if I remember correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that the increased immigration of low wage, of low skill workers to America over the last couple of decades may have low, lowered high school dropout salaries by 5%. And that seems like an incredibly small price to pay to encourage people to stay in high school and to allow people to come here and may have better lives. So I, 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 if I'm remembering correctly, it's 8% in the, the, the 2003 Quarterly Journal of Economics paper by that's George said, Borjas. That's why I said like 5%. That's my confirmation yeah, yeah. bias. No, no, Sorry, it, 8%. It, it, it is on the order of 5%. I think, <laughs> I think he finds 8%. For the average Thanks American the worker, he finds uh, 3%. And, and really, that, uh, th- this is a great point that you're making. It's worth pointing out that the big debate uh, with, with uh, Borjas and others on one side uh, and uh, David Card and, and Giovanni Perry on the other side is, uh, is over uh, numbers that are uh, tightly circumscribed around zero. You know, is it plus 1%? Is it negative 3%? Because, as you said, we're talking about the cumulative effect of decades of migration. This is not a per-year effect. Uh, th- this is uh, decades and decades of all immigration, authorized and unauthorized, in all sectors from all countries. Uh, Borjas's estimate is three uh, percent decrease at the end of that period, or uh, uh, I think it's 0.14 percent per year, whatever that works out to as an annual uh, change. These are just uh, minuscule compared to the other things that have been going on in the economy, like uh, I don't know the Great Recession. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, I'll, I'll stop there. So we're short of time here. Let's let's try to finish. I want to I want to just mention we haven't talked about it at all. Obviously, there are many non-monetary aspects to immigration and emigration. Yeah, um, I actually think that people tend to underestimate the positive benefits of those. They tend to focus on what they perceive as negative benefits. But we're going to keep that to the side. I just want to mention I, we all understand that. That the monetary impacts, financial impacts, not the only thing we care about. Um, but on just the economic side, uh, do you want to? Do you have a view on what the ideal policy should be toward immigration and emigration? Uh, without getting into the current legislative issues, which I have personally not been following and are quite complex, do you think we should distinguish between low skilled and high skilled labor in our immigration policy? Uh, should it? How much more open should we be? Do you think there's any politically plausible way we'll get there to a more open set of borders? I uh, people often ask me if I am in favor of open borders, and uh, I, uh, I I I take an agnostic approach to that question. <laughs> That's kind of a strange uh, term, but I like I, that. by. by by, by it, I mean that I think the question is ill-posed. I, I just I don't even understand what people are asking when they ask it. So do they mean that everybody from everywhere in the world should be able to freely move to every every other spot on the world? Well, that's not uh, 
I don't have that right right now. I don't know of anybody who's ever had that right, actually. I, I can't walk into your house. I can't walk into a military base. Uh, I can't uh, go sit on the street. Uh, the police would remove me after a while. Uh, I, uh, my, my movements are tightly regulated. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the property markets uh, are regulating where I can pitch a tent and, and live. Uh, we, we certainly, if open borders means absolutely free movement, then we certainly don't have that in this country. Uh, if open borders means uh, anybody can come get immediate uh, uh, access to any public service, no matter whether or not they've paid into the system, uh, that's not a a that's not something that I enjoy either. Uh, I don't get to take social security money out unless I've put money in. Um, that's also true for immigrants, by the way. You can't uh, get any money out of Social Security until you have uh, uh, paid into it for at least 40 quarters. That is minimum a decade of work uh, uh, or more. Uh, so uh, I, uh, if, if open borders means the absolutely free movement of people without uh, uh, any sort of tracking of who they are or any concern for uh, free riding in uh, public services or any concern for uh, uh, trespassing <laughs> on uh, private property, uh, then uh, then no, uh, uh, open borders doesn't exist in any uh, space that I've ever seen. I I don't really want it to exist. So, I, but before we talk about open borders, I need to know uh, what that means. Usually, people mean uh, something like uh, a a a great relaxation of the policy barriers to movement that people face right now. And uh, I think a, a useful thought exercise is to ask uh, uh, what are the uh, effects of those barriers relative to their absence. That is, if we didn't have them, take a particular policy barrier, uh, uh, look at the world if we didn't have it, and ask uh, how we're better off from having it. Um, we didn't have a Chinese Exclusion Act until 1883 when uh, Congress voted to prevent the immigration of essentially all people of Chinese ethnicity, not just Chinese nationals, but people who were ethnically Chinese. Uh, and that was pretty much the rule for the next 70 years. Now, uh, uh, there was a, we had a world without that law. We had a world with that law. Do we have any sign? Uh, do we have any, uh, uh, any scrap of evidence that that law made us better off? Well, uh, I've never seen one. Um, and uh, I, I, I think uh, it's, it would be reasonable to doubt that that made uh, anybody in the, in the United States uh, economically better off. Um, and, it certainly made, that, and it certainly made a bunch of Chinese worse off. <laughs> uh, it, it made all kinds of people worse off, I, I would assert. Uh, you could ask the same about lots of provisions of, uh, of legislation. So you, you, I know you don't want to get into the weeds of legislation, but one aspect of the bill, which uh, has been passed by the U.S. Senate uh, and uh, which the U.S. House is now considering its response to, uh, is uh, temporary work visas. And those those uh, visas, uh, as outlined uh, in, uh, there's a low skill. Uh, work visa that's proposed called a W visa. There's a high skill, the continuation of the current high skill temporary work visa called the H-1B. Both of those in the legislation have 
both uh, uh, caps on the number of visas that can be given each year and a labor market test that potential employers are required to pass. Uh, that is, they must prove to the Department of Labor that they could not find an American to fill the position in question. And if you sit and think about that for a minute, uh, uh, let's say that there, uh, as, as proposed in the Senate bill, there's a cap on of 200,000 maximum low-skilled W visas that can be given in, a, in any given year. And I am the restaurateur who wants to hire the 200,000 at first uh, worker. And I... Uh, duly advertised the position. I proved to the Department of Labor that there wasn't any American willing to do this job, even though I, as an employer, can add value to the U.S. economy by uh, employing somebody in that job. And then I'm told that, uh, actually, this is the 200,000 first, so you can't hire him. Uh, that uh, doesn't make any logical sense. Now, nobody gains from that. No U.S. worker gains because uh, I couldn't find one willing to do it. Uh, uh, I, the employer, am hurt. The whole economy is hurt. Uh, the Department of Labor doesn't get anything out of the deal. The potential migrant certainly loses uh, if it were to be a, 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 a typical low-skill Mexican in the, the police premium study I mentioned before. That person probably would have tripled or quadrupled his or her real living standard by filling a job like that. Everybody loses uh, in that scenario. So if uh, if more open borders means uh, getting rid of provisions of uh, of legislation that uh, don't uh, don't help anyone and and hurt everyone, uh, uh, then uh, then then movements toward open borders uh, are uh, fall into that class of things that uh, that economists love to search for, which are uh, Pareto optimal things, things that that make some some people or everybody better off without making anybody worse off. But in your ideal world, would you make any distinction between low and high school labor in terms of immigration policy? Um, I have never seen good evidence that uh, that uh, 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 planners in Washington are better than employers at doing that. Uh, certainly, distinctions need to be made. Uh, there could be very high demands for some kinds of low-skill labor uh, relative to some kinds of high-skill labor. There could be very high demand for some kinds of high-skill labor relative to some kinds of low-skill labor. Uh, that needs to be determined by some process. Then you have to ask, uh, what is the best process to make that distinction? And... Um, as far as I know, the people who are best able to determine how many uh, cucumber, lettuce, and melon pickers are needed are farmers. The people who are best able to determine how many uh, IT engineers are needed in Silicon Valley are the people who are at those firms working day-to-day -day and knowing exactly what skills and uh, type of person is required. And the the ability of people who are not there to do it uh, uh, much better than than them is uh, uh, not uh, proven, to put it in the lightest possible terms. Well, on that, we'll close on that Hayekian note about uh, the particular knowledge of time and place. My guest has been Michael Clemens. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.